You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news and Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to LifeSpa.com. In today's podcast, I have a really special guest, Donnie Yance. He's an old friend of mine. He's written a couple of amazing books. Uh, his first book was called Adaptogens in Medical Herbalism, more of a textbook, really. And his second, more recent one, Herbal Medicine, Healing, and Cancer. He's a master herbalist from the prestigious American Herbalist Guild. He runs a, an amazing medical center in Ashland, Oregon called the Madiri Center. You can get more information about that at madiricenter.org. Um, Donnie, welcome. So good to see you again. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Juilliard. It's my pleasure to be on the show with you. Yeah, it's great. I remember, you know, we, we spoke at the Black Mountain conventions years and years and years ago, and, and you were always my favorite speaker. I, if I heard that you were speaking, I would make sure I was there to hear what you had to say. You know, I think that uh, if, if those of you don't know Donnie Yance, you should know the name Donnie Yance. Um, you know, if you ever, uh, he's the expert in herbalism for cancer. Um, you know, he, he like what I try to do is I back modern science with or ancient wisdom with modern science. Donnie's all about the science behind the herbs. And it's so important to have that kind of knowledge as well as he's, um, um, I'll probably screw this up, but he has a, he was in seminary for a big part of his life. So he has a really depth of spiritual background. So it's not just medicine, herbal, you know, it's much more of a holistic understanding Donnie has. He's just one of the sweetest, kindest people you'll ever want to know. And if you ever get sick, uh, mm -hmm. he's the guy to call for sure. Donnie, thanks a lot. Yeah. Hey, listen, so Thank you wrote you. an article Thank recently you. on um, COVID and the vaccines, and everybody's wondering and worrying, what should I do? Should I get the vaccine? Should I not get the vaccine? I thought your article was really uh, insightful. Can you share a little bit about what you wrote about? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're getting mixed messages in that, that we have living in a world where there's so much polarization, so much like drastic opposite thinking. So you have the the mandate, the government mandate, the the so-called quote conventional science telling everybody get the vaccine. If you don't want it, you're doing the right thing for everyone. They're pushing, 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 pushing really hard, which uh, which I don't agree with. And then you have the opposite. You have people saying. Anyone that's had the vaccine, don't go near them. They might transmit to you and might cause all kinds of problems. Uh, I don't see any real hardcore evidence of that. Although I think if someone's had the vaccine and they're exhibiting symptoms, it potentially could be problematic. But you know, I I I, I like to back up a little bit. And and first of all, I don't really trust any of the 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 data or the information that's being disseminated to us right now through news media and, and other channels. It, it, I would believe it if I saw in my own field some truth being revealed. For example, the CDC and the NIH and, Meds, um, and uh, um, <clears throat> Medscape all pulled together a paper last week on, on therapeutics, you know, COVID and therapeutics. And so what works and what doesn't work? Well, lo and behold, all the things that work are the super expensive drugs like remdesivir, which actually doesn't really work well. Uh, the research is not very strong on remdesivir. Things like ivermectin, they show, oh, no research to back that up when they, that is absolutely not true. They go into vitamin D, say no benefit from vitamin D. They cite one study from Brazil. 
which was doomed to fail. People that went in the hospital, very ill with COVID, gets a single dosage of vitamin D and they expected that to work. Zinc does nothing. Herbal medicine does nothing. So when I know that that's not true, the evidence is strong to show that none of these things necessarily quote unquote treat COVID, but we know that if we support our bodies with this, these such elements, we're much better positioned to resist COVID, get sick from COVID and die from COVID. The evidence is so clear that, that I can't, when they start saying, do the vaccine, do the vaccine, there's no problems. I can't believe this to be true. Historically, they've always told us, I mean, I have slides of people taking baths of DDT, thinking it was the safest thing in, you know, that anyone could take. Thalidomide in the 50s. I, the, only, the only medical intervention, here I am, 62 years old, the only medical intervention I've ever had in my body, the only one is having my tonsils ripped out at like five years old, prophylactically telling me that that was good to do. You don't really need your tonsils. And so when they, they say certain things, I can't trust. So to have hesitation, as I call it, to, to look at brand new technology being used in these vaccines, to be hesitant knowing that, that we don't have any long-term data, they're actually not FDA approved, they're approved for emergency use only, to have caution and hesitancy shouldn't be looked at to be unpatriotic or something from coming from ignorance. It's just a matter of looking at everything and knowing what, what really is, is what I think is in your best interest. That being said, you know, of all the vaccines out there, um, even though it was briefly taken off the market, I, I, if someone's gonna get the vaccine, I do recommend the J&J &J vaccine, mostly because of maybe five reasons. One is it's a one-shot vaccine. Two, it doesn't need all the re heavy refrigeration. Um, so it, it, it's much easier to transport around. Three, Johnson & Johnson has, has committed itself to not making any profit on its vaccine, where um, both Pfizer and Mandera are both are set to make $30 billion each on their COVID vaccines, ridiculous amount of money, way more than they've ever made in the history of their, their companies. And four, the J&J &J has been tested in the African variant, the South African variant with pretty good success, although it didn't completely eradicate the virus, there were no deaths associated with the virus. And five, overall, the side effects are less and more manageable than the RNA technology in the Mondera and the, and the um, Pfizer vaccine. So I don't pick sides and say, you know, people have to make their own decision. My personal decision right now, right, wrong, or different from other people's viewpoint is to be hesitant and to not. Now we may all have to be mandated to have the vaccine and that's another, another step, another decision we'll all have to make. Wow. Wow. So from the perspective of um, the Pfizer vaccine and these, and these other vaccines, you feel like there was some information you talked about how some of these vaccines could actually enter into the DNA, although the research was only on when you actually get COVID, you could the, the virus could enter into and alter the DNA. But the research wasn't actually on the vaccine. Can you explain the difference? Well, I think, you know, with any vaccine, with, you know, you have two branches of your immune system, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. The way that the immune system is set out to work, because we're, you know, we're, we're built with this life force. You know, we're, we, we have a belief that we have an innate healing ability uh, to, you know, an innate healing ability 
God-given ability to take care of things. And, you know, and it's all throughout all living organisms, most notably the plant world. Plants uh, are very, very smart and they've been dealing with viruses and different microbes forever and, and done very well with it. And so in the innate immune system is the inflammatory component. So that's where we do get an upheaval of cytokines that are pro-inflammatory. That's not a bad thing. We don't necessarily, one thing isn't bad and the other is good. It's all how it works together. There's an orchestration to everything. So when you take these various vaccines, it's a tricking mechanism. How they work generally is to trick the immune system to somehow get through that innate, that, that innate response and try to get right away to an antibody response. You know, so you, you really kind of bypass certain components of how your immune system works from these pro-inflammatory state where you get feverish, you get, you get flu-like symptoms. All of that is part of an inflammatory response, but quickly your body should be signaling over to the adaptive immune system where you make your T cells, which are very important, um, and then eventually your memory uh, B cells, which then eventually figure out, I know this virus, I know how to eradicate it. So these vaccines are ways of kind of tricking and manipulating this. And we never know, you know, with the spike protein and whether when we get these other variants, whether we'll get a, a stronger immune response that will cause potentially more inflammation in the body. And what I'm really mostly concerned about with vaccines is, mo is long-term. I tell people everything you do, think in terms of three, three ways. What impact does it have you in the short term? What impact in the intermediate, which is you know months or a couple of years? And then what impact does this have in the long term? So you know that we're, we see year after year after year, we see this increase of, of diseases, syndromes, autoimmune diseases, all on the rise, asthma, allergies, um, you know, mold toxicity, mast cell disease, all these new syndromes and diseases. And I think, I believe that the, the impact of, of, of vaccine overload is, is causing our, our immune systems and our body as a whole not to auto-regulate very well. You know, and so again, it's not a, like, like a, a specific tie, like this vaccine might've done this, but it's this cumulative effect of vaccines in general, it's it's an, it's it's you know, vac everything has its place, and so there is a time and a place to do a vaccine. So I'm not like overtly anti-vaccine, but this 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 onslaught of vaccine after vaccine after vaccine, um, it's impacting us. I have no doubt, generally in a negative way. So there is some. Some research that I dug up, and I've done a lot of research on the lymphatic system and <clears throat> the newly discovered glymphatic system in the brain, which suggests that we have like three pounds of plaque dumping out of our head every year while we sleep at night. And some studies that I read in, my, in uh, some of the articles I wrote was that the, 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 when the brain lips get congested, they're linked to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, and in fact, autoimmune concerns. Now, it takes years for these studies to get to reach medical practice. But there seems like there is a, a mechanism for autoimmunity, which is when the master computer gets congested, can't get its trash out, and as a result, doesn't know how many fire trucks to send to the fire on Main Street. One, a hundred, and creates an overzealous or an underzealous immune reaction. And I've seen some studies with COVID, the long haul effects of COVID, that show that they do impact the lymphatic system, particularly the glymphatic system. Have you dug into that at all? 
No, but that completely makes sense to me, you know, and I, I, I don't, I, I try not to get so mechanistic and on where, you know, where, where it's all coming from, but this concept of everything is networked, you know, the, our body is networked as one whole system. We are networked molecularly, cellularly, and at the organ system level, and everything impacts everything. So, so again, how I start thinking, and I suppose back is some of our best medicine is non-specific root nourishing. So I always go back to how do we get if we're if our health is like a tree, how do we nourish the root system? Then now let's look at the external tree and see what things we need on a specific level to be doing. And again, there are you know herbal medicine and dietary medicine and lifestyle medicine can actually lend a helping hand so that we are become more robust, that we auto-regulate better, and we auto-organize without dictating, without an herb saying, you need to bring down this cytokine. We know you're, you, got a, you got a cytokine storm, IL-1 beta and IL-6 are all going crazy, this and that. We need to get your IL-1 down. No, not necessarily. We need to get something that works harmoniously with our body to, to trigger it, to give it some support, lend a helping hand, that it can figure out if it gets the right support. If that doesn't quite work, yeah, you bring in the specific medicine or you use the support me mechanism, the support medicine as the primary medicine and you use small amounts of the specific medicine. And that's kind of that's Madiri medicine, you know, or Madiri care 101. It's like really like how to, how to use the combination of nonspecific general supportive medicine with small amounts of specific medicine. And in the wake, almost all the herbs that we would do for what I would say the symptom presentation for COVID, all the, the herbs that we would typically use for that presentation, so the first phase of COVID, those would all be generally thought of as lymphatic, you know, regulating as well. When you think of yarrow, elderflower, elder uh, uh, leaf, um, honeysuckle, you know, these, these plants, um, even ginger, these plants that are referred to as, as uh, diaphoretics, they activate the lymph system, they activate diaphoresis. Everything opens up and helps things come out better out of the body, creates movement. So that's the other important part of any way of, of, of helping the, supporting the body is to get movement. Oxygen moves, lymph moves, blood has to move. And we know that the complications of COVID and with some of the vaccines now is a prothrombotic state. So people get these blood clots. Well, that's stag blood stagnation. An herb like Achillea, which I mentioned in my last blog, Yarrow, what a beautiful plant. One of the great weeds of our, of our world, you know, soldier's herb, you know, or, or emperor's herb, this, this amazing, uh, or warrior herb, this amazing herb with this an amphoteric ability that this herb is moves the blood, moves the lymph system, good for the kidneys, good for the liver. It's a, you know, slightly bitter in nature. And not only is it a, a plant that we would use to pre prevent blood stasis in the wake of something like, like an infection, but it's also a plant that's used to help the blood to clot when the blood is, is um, uh, when, you're, when you say you have a wound to heal or something, uh, that's how they used yarrow in the Civil War, for example. They'd take the, the yarrow flowers, ru uh, rub it into its hands, and put that right on the wound. And so, again, this is the beauty of nature. On, on, nature can help do opposite things in different situations. 
in, in cancer, it can, it can um, help with, with hypomethylation on the systemic level or at the cancer level, it can suppress hypermethylation. It can, it can scavenge free radicals and healthy cells and induce free radical damage in cancer cells. This is the beauty of nature. This is the beauty of natural medicine. Yeah, <clears throat> herbal intelligence and how, how important that is. You know, in, uh, in Ayurveda, they say, treat, you know, treat the, uh, don't treat the disease, treat the person who has it. I mm -hmm. think that's what you were basically saying. We need to treat the whole body, recognize that everything connects and you can't just treat um, one condition or one aspect of the body without affecting everything else. But our, also system is set up, our system is set up to think reductionistically like that. And so even right. people, even people in, in holistic circles are thought to think that way now. It's really hard right. to get, because I train, you know, I train uh, practitioners all the time. And still, even people that are in, in, in a holistic medical setting or uh, trained in, 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 in herbalism, acupuncture, whatever it is, they still, because we get in the system and our mindsets begin to think like that, oh, I've got this person with this disease, I got this person with that disease. And yes, in the Madiri system, there's always three things. Treat the person, treat the host, treat the microenvironment, and then treat the disease third and last. But you don't ignore the disease, but that's always the third piece, the host, the microenvironment, and the disease, three pieces to it. And the, the, the therapeutics are always botanical medicine, nutritional medicine, dietary medicine, lifestyle medicine, and pharmaceutical medicine. All th those are your five toolboxes. Yeah. Well, you know, like you said, it's all set up that way where the research model, model is, you know, one drug has to treat everybody with arthritis, you know, where, where we know from, you know, uh, an Ayurvedic perspective, from an Eastern perspective, a Madiri perspective, that everybody with arthritis could have a could have a unique and different cause of that arthritis. So you need to treat them all as individuals and yeah. treat them accordingly. Where uh, and we used to laugh at the, like the naturopathic approach, which is sort of Western medicine diagnosis using natural things, um, as opposed to really doing a more traditional Chinese sort of Ayurvedic look at the at the host and see where the imbalance was and begin to treat it. And the upstream cause of most imbalances from the Ayurvedic perspective is digestion. You know, I wrote a book called Eat Wheat, and it was all about how people um, stop eating wheat because they can't digest it. You know, nuts, seeds, grains, legumes, lectins, they just take stuff out of the diet and they think they've solved the problem. But the reality is that undigested food or the proteins, the, the, the casein and dairy and the, lect and the lectins and, and nut, nuts and seeds and the gluten and wheat, they're hard to digest. And so are the, you know, the 70 million tons of environmental pollutants dumped in our atmosphere every year those toxins have to be digested and detoxified from our body. And if you can't, if you don't have the digestive strength to digest wheat or dairy or nuts or seeds or grains or legumes or lectins, how are you going to deal with the mercury from the coal mine plumes that, that are everywhere, that are on all our organic vegetables? So the point is, I think what we do is we just think, oh, I'll just take the food out of my diet and solve my problem. But what it actually set us up for is underlying indigestion. And studies show that when proteins and fats are not digested properly from the coal mine plumes and things like that, fat soluble mercury, they end up too big to get into your blood, they end up in your lymphatic system, they congest your lymph, which is basically carrying your immune system. Mm -hmm. And then you have a 
a, you know, a, a viral, an, an immune event, and your body is already overwhelmed with inflammation in the immune carrying system, mm -hmm. which can affect your joints, can affect your skin, a skin associated lymph, can affect your brain, give you brain fog, or compromise the, major, the master computer, which then affects how well it responds to that immune event. So, so you know, you know, again, I think we're, 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 I love how you think because it's always talking about, you know, the disease is the last thing we treat. We have to help this person get back into balance. And there's many therapies that, like, um, I'm curious what you think about things like melatonin, which has been, you know, some really interesting research, not as a sleep hormone, but as a, you know, kind of a, a connector to the circadian clock, yeah. a reset of the circadian clock. And also a detoxer for not just the brain lymph, but supporting detoxification for the whole body. Yeah, I, I do use melatonin, I, and I think there's different ways to think. Again, I there's two ways. Do we see melatonin as a way to replace what appears to be a, a physiological deficiency of melatonin? Either someone's gotten way off with their sh sleeping patterns, and there we would use like a half a milligram to one milligram, which I use, or do we need to go to a higher dosage where now melatonin, we're using dosages that are, that are far beyond what would be normally taken in but, but produced by our body naturally. Now it's a pharmacological dosage of melatonin. And that doesn't mean that it's, that it's bad to use. That just means now we're going to strong medicine melatonin. We're not trying to normalize the body and bring it back into harmony. We're saying melatonin's got a job to do as an exogenous you know, hormone. And I try to minimize my any kind of medicine that isn't about bringing harmony and balance in. I'll do anything that, to get someone well. That, that don't, you know, I think that the objective is if someone is in an ill state, getting them well is where we need to go but I'm very slow to use very high dosages of melatonin or any other uh, hormone, but I'm not totally opposed to it. And I will again, do that on occasion, but more likely I'm using very low dosages of melatonin, half a milligram, one milligram, maybe two milligrams. And, but I do see a, a tremendous amount of research into the health benefits of melatonin. Now, does that mean if someone has naturally good, healthy levels of melatonin, they sleep well, they sleep at the right time, do, we, do they benefit from giving them more melatonin? I don't personally take melatonin, um, but I do use it with people. I have no trouble sleeping, I'm a great sleeper, and so I'm not drawn to it intuitively to do things. And again, I, I try to be as clean and natural, and I love my, you know, I love using plants and diet as my primary foundation, then I start bringing things in. And even as I bring nutrients in, you know, people that maybe have methyl defects, everybody wants to load them up with, you know, methyl support. And I said, no, just do a little support because their whole body, their whole life, they've been, they've had methyl defects. So who's to say that their body isn't compensating to some degree and doing okay with it. We identify it, we say maybe they could do a little bit better, but I believe it's better to do a little bit of support and see what happens than too much support. Because uh, when you do too much support, you're now replacing what the body and the body tendency is to get lazy. You know, if you have a, a low thyroid and you, you've exhausted everything in the natural toolbox to, you know, to get someone well, 
you use the lowest, you don't, you, you don't just go on any dosage of thyroid, use the lowest dose possible and see what happens. If that doesn't work, you just go slowly up until you find the right spot as opposed to, because if you take too much, you're not supporting the body, you're replacing the body. You're replacing the thyroid and we wanna help the thyroid not replace it. Yeah, absolutely. There's some interesting research, Donnie, that you like is by a researcher named Al Louie, L-E-W-Y, mm -hmm. needed research on low dose melatonin. You know, 0.1.5 milligrams work is just as good as five milligrams. Nice. So the research is trending in that direction where yeah. just a little bit. And as we do age, you know, get over after menopause or over 50 or 60, we do start start producing less melatonin. So one way to sort of hack the aging process, if you will, uh, is to take a, you know, a micro dosing of melatonin just to encourage natural production. I did a podcast with a melatonin researcher and she told me that melatonin at the right dose encourages production versus at a higher, higher dose, which may. Yeah, well, that's exactly what, that's exactly my point. And, and, but right. here's the other thing, you know, as we age, people have this, this conception that our hormones all go down. And I think that's true to a degree, but more so true than that is that they get more uh, inefficient. And so we, everyone's heard of the term insulin resistance, right? So we have like a big term, big term. I think every hormone gets resistant. So you have thyroid resistance, testosterone resistance, estrogen. How could it be that prostate cancer and hormone positive breast cancer increase after the, the older we live when we're, we have the highest level of estrogen and testosterone when we're young? Why wouldn't we be getting cancer young? We're supposed to not, women aren't supposed to have estrogen, you know, at 65, 70 years old, but yet they have this estrogen cancer. It's because of resistance. So all of our hormones are getting resistant. The receptors are all clogged up. How we're producing them isn't working well. Things that carry them from the cell receptor into the cell engine, you know, everything is working less efficiently. So again, a big part of what I think natural medicine does and can do is slowly make the body work a little bit more efficiently. And then again, we still may use a little bit of that microdosage of melatonin, but we've done everything we can to maximize it in the most um, closest way with nature as possible. And you know, melatonin's found in different foods and, and even just getting light on your eyes first thing in the morning sets the circadian clock. You know, there's a lot of other ways to encourage melatonin production than, than just you know, taking melatonin. Um, and there's precursors to melatonin like serotonin. And so there's relationships uh, between all of these things um, as well. Interesting, you know, when you talk about the, you know, the uh, hormonal resistance, mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you think that's due to endocrine disruptors and how do you deal with those? There was a book out that just came out called Countdown recently about a about uh, the epidemic of uh, infertility, where I think in the last 50 years, we have 40% less childbirths or fertility than we did. I think the study just came out today, this morning I saw it in the news, that we have the lowest rates of births since the 1940s uh, happening right now. And this one researcher did all the research and realized that we've been you know, slowly being unable to make babies because of all these endocrine disruptors. So do you think the endocrine disruptors are have, which pollution basically, have the impact with regard to the you know the hormone resistance you talk about and then how do you fix it how do you get rid of all these 
these endocrine disruptors, yeah. if that's the case. Well, I think, I think that is a major cause. There's no doubt that endocrine disruptors in our environment are a major cause of, of you know, infertility problems, hormone-related uh, cancers, uh, and as well as um, there's an increase of female birth compared to male birth for the first time, too, in our society. So more, more girls are being born proportionately to men, which has never happened before. There's always been this perfect balance. So that's also a result because the, the, the endocrine disruptors have more of a tendency to feminize us. You know, you're seeing boys, you know, 13, 14 years old with breasts. You know, it's like they're, you know, we're seeing a whole change in our anatomy uh, as a result of that. And then that leads to more obesity, all kinds of other problems. So there's no doubt. And then another effect is the impact of our way of living of overstimulation and an output of more stress hormones. So the more output of energy, the less input. So how we keep our reproductive hormones healthy is this input of energy, you know, which a lot takes place while we sleep. We sleep, our bodies restore. If we, if we sleep less than say seven hours, seven to nine hours is optimal. And we say, oh, I get up, I feel great, everything's fine, I don't need more than six hours. Yeah, you can relate. Your perspective on your health is good, but slowly there's a diminishing effect on some of these important anabolic hormones. You know, they're 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 going down, they're going down, or and as a as a way the body compensates and says the adrenal gland needs to be bigger. So our adrenal glands are getting bigger to make more stress hormones at the expense of our reproductive health. So that's another cause. Now, how do we fix it? There's, there's always two ways to fix it. We can fix it by lowering our exposure to them or reducing our exposure. So obviously in dietary cases, eating food that is, is not potentially uh, been, been altered by um, substances, growth hormone and various antibiotics, which can also mimic hormones and you know, all the plastics uh, that we're exposed to, you know, so reduce our exposure to the best of our ability and now mitigate it, you know, mitigate it with, with natural medicine. And so there's a lot of ways that we can, we can help our bodies deal and interrupt endocrine disruptors before they can get to the receptors and kind of plug them up. That's what they do. They, 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 the receptors think they're the hormone, they go to the receptor and they're not the hormone. And so not only is it cause health problems, but it's a two, it's a double problem. We have this, this, this unknown substance binding to a receptor, that's a hormone supposed to bind to, and we don't have the hormone binding anymore either. So we, you know, so it's a double, it's a double problem when it comes to that. So there are a lot of things in our diet that can kind of clean that up. You know, uh, we, we hear about epigenetic regulators, you know, phenolic substances, carotenoids, uh, the, the brassicus family, all of the, the uh, um, isothiocinates, all of these um, to some degree mitigate endocrine disruptors. That's why I think you know, having those in the diet is very, very imperative. Um, of course, I'm a big proponent of adaptogens that help normalize this as well. They're fertility promoting. And then a lot of herbs that have um, oh, sterile components in them because Herbs have, uh, plants have, you know, we're not that different than plants. And so plants have plant sterols, you know, which are plant hormones. Then you have plant hormones called ectosterones or ectosteroids. And these substances have profound uh, beneficial effects on binding to our receptors and not being hormones themselves, 
but again, maximizing the innate ability of us to, 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 uh, to enhance that, 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 that anabolic state of our hormones. So anabolic always refers to the ability to build ourselves back up, to, to strengthen, to make us strong and robust. And so those substances are all throughout nature and actually even in food. So the two foods that are rich in ectosterones, which again are anabolic foods are spinach and quinoa. So I always crack up because we didn't, nobody even knew what ectosterones were, you know, until what, 25, 30 years ago, maybe more, maybe 40 years ago. And what was it, 50, 60 years ago, Popeye would eat a, a can of spinach or eat a whole thing of spinach and get big muscles. <laughs> so it turns out that spinach is actually a good food for, you know, building, building muscles in the body. <laughs> that's, that's great. Amazing. So, um, <clears throat> Wow. Uh, I wonder, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, um, one of the strategies for getting rid of those endocrine disruptors is something called lipophilic mediated detox, where you take something like ghee, clarified butter, and you take it on a, you know, on a, on a calorie restricted diet. And that ghee has its ability to kind of chelate or attach to fat soluble toxins in your tissues and kind of chelate them out of your body called lipophilic mediated detox. And it's been well studied. In fact, you, they use many types of fats in modern medicine to pull toxins, but in Ayurveda, the studies have been done that it actually pulls pesticides and preserves out of your tissues to the tune of, you know, 40, 50% um, in a couple of studies that were done, which is pretty, pretty fascinating. And I wonder what you think about, about that from a detox perspective. Um, yeah, I think it, yeah, when you do modified fasting, for sure, uh, a way that the body then has to, when it's not getting enough uh, calories in to provide, you know, a, an exchange, an energy exchange, the body has to now start breaking down its, its itself. And a great way, the way it's supposed to do, is primarily go to fat storage. And then you have, you know, white fat and brown fat. So we're going to start breaking down that white fat which is stubborn and stingy, but a lot of the toxins reside in that, that white fat. So I don't know about using you know, ghee to do that. I don't know about that research, but conceptually that makes a lot of sense to me because as the body, you know, fat, fat will bind to fat. And I don't, you know, I don't know how well it carries it out. I don't, it, it makes some sense to me, but ultimately we're also gonna be taking that fat and breaking it down, which can apparently, be a little bit more toxic on our body. So I, I usually don't like to, um, I'm usually slow to have people do that. I said, slow and steady is my, is my way. There's no, there's no rush the, you know, to slow and steady because I don't want to overwhelm the body because the, the fat cells are like a little garbage collection. So they take all these, these substances that are other, otherwise going to be harmful to our body and they stuff them into the, into the fat where they do the least harm to the body. And so when we start releasing this stuff, having something to bind it and carry it out, I think is good. But at the same time, if we're calorically restricting, our bodies are gonna sequester that fat for energy production too. So we just have to be a little bit you know, careful. And I think using maybe some other substances to help uh, uh, with that, um, the endocrine disruptors as well. Uh, like I said, the sulfuric kind of compounds, sulforaphane, the the compounds in cabbage sprouts, wasabi, all the, all those substances are great. The phenolic compounds like a logic acid in um, in pomegranates and strawberries. That's another really good one. 
the sulfur, the um, the uh, uh, anything that 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 increases NRF2. So NRF2 is a master kind of chelator of those substances. And so uh, all those phenolic and, and phytoalexin compounds, terastilbin, resveratrol, uh, anthrocyanathins, various carotenoids, um, you know, all of these substances that are, that are found abundantly in a healthy diet are all going to help us to also chelate out those, um, those toxic substances too. So Fat binding, I, I think, yeah. Um, trying to think what else would be specifically useful. Again, I, I just take my time with people. I'm not, I don't, I don't think there's a race to, to detoxify people. I think, you know, I, I'm fascinated by uh, Dr. Walter Longo's research um, from USC who did a lot of longevity research and he found exactly what you're saying. If you fast for extended period of time and sort of rush the autophagy and rush the detox, <clears throat> that there's risks involved. Mm -hmm. And what I really loved about his research was he created something called the fasting mimicking diet, which was almost yeah. identical to what the Ayurvedic diet was, which is a small amount of kitchery, calorie restricted, but you're still getting 800 to 1000 calories per day. Mm -hmm. Plus the ghee is a chelator, which seemed to match, you know, his research seemed to match the ancient wisdom of doing a cleanse where you're not fasting, you are eating, you're not in any rush, you're actually very comfortable but you're getting the benefits of autophagy and stem cell activation by actually having a somewhat calorie restricted diet, but not in any way a fast, but you've got this chelation effect, this lipophilic mediated detox thing happening, where you end up having uh, that kind of an effect. I also love the fact that you talk about all these different foods. And you know, as you know, I'm fascinated by seasonal eating and how the microbes in the soil change from one season to the next and how, um, and how the foods that are that are harvested in season have specific effects for the body in specific ways. And I wondered if uh, you you make any adjustments seasonally based on whether you're giving cauliflower or broccoli or pomegranate or anything like that. Is that is that you know is that on your radar? It, completely on my radar. I, I think it's it's one of the many lenses I try to utilize when setting up a personalized diet for someone. So if I went through it, the list of things that I try to think about, one would be nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics. And so those are two different things. Nutrigenomics is the impact that various foods have on epigenetic uh, signaling. Uh, nutrigenetics is that everyone is a different genotype and the same food may affect different people differently. So we all could eat broccoli and some people get more benefit than others. And so you know, a good example is that is certain people with VDR polymorphisms, certain genotypes that have that are more susceptible to the, the impact of caffeine, high amounts of caffeine inducing osteoporosis. And so it's, it's only certain genotypes do they need to be more, more uh, concerned with over caffeine consumption. Another example is, is even in, in the realm of oncology, looking at people that take a certain drug like uh, iretecan or um, CPT-11, that if they are a UGT1A1, uh, uh, um, they have that particular SNP, then they don't metabolize that drug well. And they, they need a fraction of the dosage, and yet they're not tested for it. So understanding, you know, and this is complicated, so, but that's one area to look at diet, understanding diet. Another is totally seasonal eating, also geographical location. So going into the fall, what kind of foods help build our, our 
you know, in Chinese medicine, they would say, they would say wu qi, you know, that, that immune system to adapt to the colder weather, less sunlight, different root, more rooted vegetables, um, substances like that. And sometimes it's, 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 it's very natural, you know, because they're the foods that come in season. So nuts like walnuts, we're eating them. We're eating fruits like apples and pears and pears are great for the lungs. They're a, a kind of moistening food. So the lungs don't dry out. So I have people poach pears. So yeah, I, you know, there's all kinds of ways. And then somebody living on the equator needs to eat differently than somebody living, you know, in Alaska per se. Other factors are, uh, would be their um, culture or their heritage. You know, I'm primarily Italian. So I like Mediterranean diet for the most part. I, I have a really diverse diet, but you know, you have to understand your culture, what kind of foods your family likes to eat, what kind of foods you emotionally are drawn to, how much food should be cooked, how much food should be uh, um, raw. Uh, and a big part of diet that people leave out all the time, I always say, I don't need to know what you don't eat because that's how everyone starts out, right? <laughs> I say, what's your diet like? Well, I don't eat this, I don't eat that. I said, I don't wanna know what you don't eat. Tell me what you eat. And <laughs> that's number one, tell me what you eat. Number two is, all right, now tell me how you eat. And they said, well, what do you mean how do you eat? I said, what time of day do you eat? Do you sit down and eat? Do you prepare your meals? Are you on the go when you're eating? You know, these are all little things that, that people don't realize. I say, because digestion is a facilitation of energy. If your energy is elsewhere, of course, you're not going to have good digestion. So then other things we look at, like the presentation of acute and chronic disease. If someone has arthritis, rheumatoid, we might do certain foods that are, make more sense for them. If they have myelosuppression from chemotherapy, then we need more blood and bone marrow supportive foods. If they have high uric acid and gout, we need things that help, you know, work with the excretion of uric acid, you know, things like celery juice, things like sour black cherries. If they have uh, kidney stones, we need a diet that helps deal with that or generally high, high parathyroid or hypercalcinemia, uh, which a lot of people suffer from. I think it's one of the, I'm finding one of the most under-recognized conditions in people People all test now and look for, you know, it's on their radar and, and probably overly treated is hypothyroidism. But the other component is this hyperparathyroidism that I'm seeing all the time in people. And maybe it's from people taking too much isolated vitamin D. Maybe it's from taking calcium. I don't know what the causative factors are, but I'm seeing a lot of that as well. So then we need certain things like celery seed is amazing and celery ju juice for dealing with, you know, oxalic acid, high intake of oxalic acid. And so, um, you know, those are off the top of my head, a lot of the things that would uh, have to do with a personalized diet, but my diets are always sensible. They're always have a concept of holism. They always include a good amount of um, whole grains, diverse whole grains, fruit, vegetables. I tend to, to lean generally to a diet that is about 15 to 18% animal food, and then 85 to, you know, um, 82 to 85% plant food. And so I feel like generally speaking, that ratio most people do well on. I don't eat any meat, but I do eat fish and I do eat some dairy, but I eat, but it's not, it's, it's a, it's a complement to the bulk of plant food that I eat. It's not, it's not a, it's not a major piece of my diet. And I find that that diet is a good diet that people can resonate with, but 
my diet, similar to yours, is that I happen to think and believe based on, on looking at science, very carefully reviewing science, that, that whole grains are probably the greatest contributor to good health more than anything else and potatoes. And, it's, and, and so I, I feel like, you know, if I was to name a superfood, it'd probably be a potato. Um, it's the only single food that can sustain human life. And a, a purple potato has more anthrocyanins than any super berry you can ever name. You know, when you're looking up what makes it all purple is that purple pigment is the same thing that makes berries like blackberries and, and uh, uh, purple. Yet, what research shows is that the anthrocyanins in the potato are far more bioavailability, uh, uh, far more bioavailable than those in eating berries. And so, uh, and then you talk about ghee. So when we take certain foods, like say, put a little ghee on our potato, that also brings out and increases the bioavailability of all the nutrients in that potato. Same with olive oil and broccoli or cooking <clears throat> tomatoes and making tomato sauce and the lycopene in the tomatoes much better when you cook the tomatoes with the olive oil than the raw tomatoes. And so those are just a little bit of uh, my uh, two cents. And if you want to look at like research, like profound meta-analysis research, you know, pooled analysis showing that eating whole grains more than any other food is associated reduction of cancer, heart disease, and all-cause mortality. So, you know, the concept that people are on that, that staying away from grains and, and whole grains is going to better their health is just not based on anything truthful. There's, there isn't science to back that up, and there isn't any traditional diet that I'm aware of that eats that way that is known for good and long health. <clears throat> yeah, no, no doubt. I, I, uh, I tried to make that case. I think we had over 600 references in my book, Eat Wheat, trying to you know, cite the science on the other side of the equation because the gluten-free industry just became, you know, yeah. a billion-dollar in industry. And on the heels of that, we have a, you know, the, the, the trend against grains and starches of any kind are still pretty strong with the keto diet being alive and well. What's your take on that? Oh, I think it's, I've done two blogs on it. I think overall, you know, I, I, I always quote Ben Franklin. So uh, a place for everything, everything's in its place. So I don't like to, to totally say there isn't a possibility mm -hmm. in epilepsy in certain conditions where doing a short-term, you know, healthy version of a keto diet, I won't eliminate that from a possibility of something that some, somebody can do. But generally, I, I, I would be completely against it for any kind of long-term health for anyone. I don't, I'm not a proponent of it for any of my patients or anyone that comes to me. Um, so, but I think it can be done and still be maintained to be relatively healthy. You know, you can choose healthy fats. Some people's <laughs> liver, some people's kidneys can handle it. Some people can keep the weight on, some people can't. Some people can digest all that fat and others can't. Uh, and then there's also the impact of um, hyper acidity in the body induced from that kind of diet too, because you know, it's, it's a very acid forming diet in the body and that's anything what we wanna do. So I'm not a proponent of it. Um, I like a really diverse and balanced diet. I think you know, what makes up a good diet is healthy fats, healthy carbohydrates, you know, and, and, and a nice balanced approach of all of those foods. And, um, and that, that's what works. And if someone tells me they don't, oh, I don't digest uh, carbohydrates really well, 
you know, we start, you know, I start to break it down and try to understand where the problem is and what form they've been eating in. How do we change that? How do we reintroduce it to their diet and, um, and have it work for them? But as I think I mentioned before, people have a lot of misconceptions because when they go on a keto diet or a slash very severe carbohydrate restrictive diet, they lose a lot of water weight because one of the roles of carbohydrates uh, outside of the great amount of nutrition we get from them is that they do play a role with salt to help our bodies hold water. And then it gives our, our bodies a chance for all our cells to absorb water because you know we, we water is like an essential element to good health. And, and as people get older, one of the most underrated uh, components of poor health as people get older is dryness. Our bodies are getting weaker, so we're getting more catabolic and we're drying out. You know, we're losing our moisture, our flexibility, our elasticity. It's obvious when you see elderly people that they're, they're dry and, and frail. And so this, so this concept of how do we hydrate our cells better? Well, starch plays a big role in that. So when you deal with whole food starch, you have, you're not just dealing with white flour and a bunch of salt, which then goes right to our gut, sits there, absorbs all this water, and we feel very bloated and extended. And then when we stop that for a few days, we say, wow, all my bloatedness is gone, mostly as a result of all that excess water weight you were holding is now gone. So that can be helpful. You know, if someone has a lot of ascites in the body, you know, that's, a, that's an area where I'll restrict carbohydrates sometimes, ovarian cancer, where there's, their whole belly is blown up like a, a balloon filled with, with water. It's a result of their cancer, of course, but there I do restrict carbohydrates a little bit to get their lymph to drain a little bit better. But it's very short term and it's not at all a good diet for long term mm -hmm. health to do that. Um, let's talk a minute about your specialty, which is in fact cancer and, and how, you, how you treat that. Um, I just want to give you a quick glimpse of the Ayurvedic perspective. That's sort of our audience here. So I want you to kind of tie the two together if, they're, if it's possible. Ayurveda says that cancer is the loss of memory or what's called smirti of how to function as part of the whole. And the cells because of nutrition in and not functioning optimally or getting the waste out as efficiently as it could, the cell loses the memory of proper function. It doesn't have the nutrition to divide and become two healthy new cells. So they, they create some type of mutagenic effect to stay alive. And they kind of proliferate in a rogue way to stay alive because they don't have the, the nutrition in the waste out, the communication to restore the memory, how to function as part of the whole. So from the Ayurvedic perspective, it's always about bringing the body back into balance. So, you know, the, the intestinal tract is functioning in sync and in harmony with the liver and your stomach and your pancreas and all those are working in sync, uh, restoring the memory of whole function. Um, this is, you know, this is Donnie's, you know, you know specialty. He is the, the master really in the, in the country for treating cancer naturally and herbally. So um, this is really important that we get to listen to him about this. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, we can go into a lot of different areas to understand cancer and how I approach, but I'll, I'll start with kind of what I said before. There are three distinct areas that I work in. One is the host. So that is a little bit subjective and requires a relationship questioning symptom presentation, evaluating the constitution of that patient. And the idea is to 
build the most robust health in that patient you possibly can from every vantage point you can see and every tool you can use. The second target that we look at is what I refer to as the microenvironment, which is primarily assessed through laboratory testing. And so we can look at various markers, we can look at microterrain markers, uh, pH markers, uh, we can look at um, uh, nutrient assessment, uh, vitamin D, both forms of vitamin D, uh, zinc and copper and ceruloplasm, blood rheology, because cancer has a, can't do any damage unless it hijacks the microenvironment. So that's one of the things as it takes over. It takes over the immune system. So for example, it, the best way to look at where a cancer patient is at, the most reliable way is a simple CBC, the simplest blood test. You do not wanna have cancer patients with high neutrophils, low lymphocytes, or high platelets. Very, very important to look at that because neutrophils, there's two types of neutrophils, N1, N2, different types of macrophages, one, uh, M1 and M2. M2 N, and N2 all facilitate tumor growth. Lymphocytes fight cancer, you know, T, cytotoxic T cells, natural killer cells. So one of the things cancer does is it hijacks the microenvironment and starts doing things. It builds fibrin, it changes the pH to being very acidic. So the microenvironment is very acidic, very stagnant. Um, blood rheology is completely altered. You can look at D-dimer, fibrinogen, those are elevated in active cancer frequently. Um, so these are the, that's the microenvironment. So that's the second area we look at. The third area is the cancer itself, primarily from a phenotype. So when you started to talk about Ayurveda, so uh, there's a lot of testing and, and, and genotyping now. So molecular profiling, looking at the GM, uh, the gene sequencing. And the gene sequencing is a starting point, but it's so complex, it never tells you who the driver is and who the passenger is. And so, you know, you can be in the car with, you know, six, seven people and the cop pulls you over for speeding and he pulls a guy out of the back seat and arrests him. So that's kind of like looking at the GM. It's only through the phenotype that you know. So the phenotype is the actual behavior and that's affected by epigenetics. And so we are all born with the potential to have cancer. There's various uh, uh, assessing genes now. I mean, even in breast cancer, there's 27, I think now genes that can be tested from check mutations, BRCA mutations, the, um, uh, the, um, AL, the um, arid, arid mutations are another one. So the, these various uh, ATM mutations, those are also the P53 mutation. So the phenotype is, means that the, the mutation is the driver mutation. So finding driver mutations. So that has to do with epigenetics and, and studying the molecular energy of the cancer. So cancer is, a, is an intelligence, it's an energy. And so some cancers have a very low IQ, they're very dumb, others are very intelligent. So how do we decipher that? Well, we look at these various molecular profiling panels of somebody. So we, we, we test the disease itself, the cancer, we use things to target that disease that make the most sense, applying all of our toolboxes, which include allopathic medicine, but often a different way than standard of care. So it's not like the tools out, set out for cancer are all bad. You know, you don't avoid everything that's in that toolbox, but 
their, their, app, their application is what's all wrong. It's like the tools are, are good, whether they be targeted therapy, low-dose chemotherapy, uh, immunotherapy. It's all knowing how to use that toolbox and how do you use that toolbox to integrate it into a holistic model. See, that's what I do. You create the model and then you, you see how pharmaceutical medicine fits into that model. You don't do Ayurvedic medicine here. Like this is what I find is that you have an Ayurvedic practitioner that it can only think Ayurvedically and sees the patient and does things. Meanwhile, they're going to the standard of care doctor and they're doing the standard of care practice. And if that patient is getting treatment that is not helpful and often harmful to them, as good as you are as an Ayurvedic doctor, your patient will go downhill. The only way that you see consistency in patient getting well one after the other after the other is when all the pieces are working together. So that's why our motto in Madiri Care is called Together We Heal. All these pieces come together and there's no bias, there's no like, like anything like that. And there's a, 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 a concept that is inherent in knowing that we can only know so much. And so to embrace a model that includes some ambiguity, like some uncertainty basically, that we don't know why all the pieces work together, but the whole is what makes it work, the synergy of the whole. The model of medicine today is to reduce everything so you can study that one thing and see how it works. One last thing on that, just on diet and talking about, so there's this big movement of immunotherapy and oncology. And you know, we're talking primarily about what's called checkpoint inhibitors that target different receptors like forever. I mean, you and I have been around the same amount of time. So forever, we've always been told years ago in the 70s, 80s, 90s, oh, your immune system has nothing to do with cancer, right? Remember, that's like they said, oh, it doesn't do any good to do anything to improve your immune system. Now, five, six, seven years ago, they have this whole new branch of, of medicine called immunotherapy. So what, what just, what happened? Was the immune system had nothing to do? So, but here's the thing that immunotherapy and oncology isn't about the immune system. It's about blocking receptors that are on the cancer's surface that are enabling the cancer to camouflage itself to the immune system. So these are called checkpoint inhibitors and the primary ones are called PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors. So those are, the, and these are actually very good drugs, particularly in a setting of holistic medicine because everything we do for a patient is so uh, conducive to, to creating, to maximizing the benefit of those drugs. Never before in history have we had standard, standard of care medicine and immunotherapy be so appropriately fit into a holistic model as that, because we block the receptors with the, that, 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 the, the, that are offset in the immune system. Now we, with our tools, build a robust immune system in the patient. The, determin the most determining factor to people that do well compared to people that don't are people that have the most diverse microbiome. How you develop a diverse microbiome is through primarily a diverse diet the most important food is whole grains. So people that eat, eat complex carbohydrates, whole grains and potatoes, along with probiotic food, fermented food, prebiotic, and then the short chain fatty acids where you build your butyrate from. So, you, so as these whole grains ferment in your body, 
They create a microenvironment that builds short chain fatty acids and butyrates that proliferate T cells and get your immune system totally in this great state of health that then they're all set to go to work when that, 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 um, that program death receptor is blocked. The worst thing to be doing is a keto diet, number one. The second worst thing to do is to take antibiotics. The third worst thing to do is to take proton pump inhibitors. And the fourth worst thing to do is to be on steroids. All four of those things will negate the benefits from immunotherapy. So do you work with oncologists to kind of help to get these medications? And how yeah. did you establish those relationships? That's usually not, they're usually not too friendly to, well, you know, herbalists and things. It's a great, it's a great question. And um, we on the Madiri board, so our board is made up of three oncologists, just so you know. Uh -huh. uh, so, so on our board of like nine or 10 people, a third of them are oncologists and, and very well-known reputable oncologists too. And um, as well as our director of education is a professor at Harvard. So, uh, but I, I, you know, I've lectured at, at some of the most prestigious institutions in the country and spent a week lecturing at the biggest hospital in uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Israel. So to the whole, the whole entire oncology department actually. So the way that I, that, you know, there's two things that I've been able to do to build relationships. One, is to study one to two hours a day to know their toolbox better than them. So I know every single drug for in oncology, experimental drugs, non-experimental drugs, every type of targeted therapy, uh, uh, specific uh, drugs like check, uh, check uh, inhibitors, um, EGFR inhibitors, uh, mTOR inhibitors, PIK3 inhibitors, you know, you pretty much name it. I know those class of drugs pretty well. I, I can you know, read blood work like better than anyone. I can read pathology very, very well. So I study every single day, I accumulate data. So when I converse with them, I can speak their language. And so when they know that I can converse with them, then I can then bring them over and say, well, you know why I wanna test the fibrinogen and D-dimer in your patient is two benefits. Benefit one is that you do know that cancer patients are seven to 10 times higher risk of dying on blood clots than normal people are. So a great cause of death in cancer patients is a blood, throwing a blood clot and dying. And then most of the drugs they give from chemotherapy to steroids to some of the other uh, targeted therapies like thalidomide and, and uh, Revlimid, these drugs increase that risk. So by testing the best blood markers to assess that, we can maybe uh, intervene and do things to prevent that from happening. Now, the other benefit is that the, fib the fibrin, which is the, the, the build of fibrin and the reduction of plasmin is ability of the cancer to hypercoagulate the blood to build the tumor. So the tumor is kind of like a bird's nest. It's, it's, it's creating the blood into this very stringy, quality and that's conducive to the cancer. So when we reduce that, all of a sudden we're, we're reducing the risk of a prothrombotic episode in the patient, but we're also making everything else we work better. So when you're able to remove that stagnation and move the blood with blood moving herbs and enzymes, particularly lumbrokinase, the enzyme from the earthworm, that one is the, the, probably the best at, at that, but other end protolytic enzymes are useful as well. 
but you use enzymes and herbs and in very uh, extreme cases, you can use low molecular heparin, which is a pharmaceutical, and believe it or not, low dose nitroglycerin is an amazing uh, agent too, to help uh, too. So anyway, that's, that's the, those are the two things is that I, and also the other thing, they see how good my patients do. So when they see someone that comes to me, all of a sudden they're looking great and doing well, then they, they after year after year after year, you know, you've got a stage four cancer patient surviving year after year, living a normal life. Eventually they say, there's something that this patient's doing that my other patients aren't. And so then they eventually, um, you develop a rapport with them. And um, I actually have to talk to an oncologist as soon as I finish this call with you about a patient, a uh, complex patient actually. So uh, anyway, that's, that's kind of how I've been able to make some headway, but it's every day is a battle. You know, every time I get on the phone with somebody new, I have to start all over again if they don't know who I am and, and go through the rigmarole. So, so it's, it's one, one, one person at a time we kind of get over. But we, we've been trying to launch clinical trials with major institutions, but because of the model, the re reductionistic model in this, this, this theoretical fear around herb-drug interaction, I keep trying to tell them er herb-drug interaction is a good thing, not a bad thing. Herbs can piggyback on with drugs and increase their, their designated uh, design target. They can work around the target and do other things. They can reduce resistance of cancer cells to the target and they can and mitigate the side effects of that drug. So there's a whole way that herbs are tremendously helpful along with drug therapy. So yes, there's interaction, but for the most part, when, you know, when you're doing what you're supposed to, that interaction is very, very positive. And 99% of the negative information you hear on herb-drug interaction is based on theory on looking at pharmacokinetics, not pharmacogenomics or pharmacodynamics, and I wanna to get too technical, but pharmacokinetics is, is understanding that not only, not only looking at an herb, but an isolated compound in an herb that affects an enzyme that the drug is metabolized through as soon as they see that that herb has impacted that enzyme that detoxifies that drug, they automatically say that's a negative herb-drug interaction without, without actually seeing that to be truthful. It's all based in theory because the objective in the end is did it, did it interfere with the cytotoxic effects of the drug? And there's no research. Even, even the one, the most malign herb of all time, which is St. John's wort, hypericum, which does upregulate you know, the 3A4, the 2D6 pathways, and does impact drug metabolism, particularly if you're taking it at a high enough dosage, say 900 to 1600 milligrams of a standardized St. John's wort extract. If that's the case, then you, uh, <clears throat> you could reduce the, the, the blood level of that drug by as much as one third, so 30, 35% reduction. And they studied that and that's potentially possible. But the same studies that study that interaction found no reduction in kill effect by the, the cytotoxic drug. In other words, the tumor wasn't less reduced. And in some studies it was enhanced and it also reduced a lot of the side effects. And so the end result was that the, the herb did not interfere even though it brought the blood levels down. 
And that's called phytodynamics. Uh, uh, that is the end result is what actual impact you take herb A at this dosage, drug A at this dosage, take them together, what does the end result happen? Not theoretically what we think might happen, what actually happens? Because there's a lot of metabolites. You know, The other thing is that understanding metabolism. So all these companies talk about, we have better herbal absorption because we liposome it, we nanoparticle size it, we do this, that, and the other thing. And we show these blood levels of curcumin that are higher than other companies. That's a bunch of hogwash as well, because you're not supposed to have curcumin in your bloodstream. It's supposed to convert into metabolites, tetrahydrocurcuminoids, for example, is the most uh, active curcumin. So everything we eat, like soy, we don't have genistein in our bloodstream. It converts into equal. So everything ferments and undergoes a transformation. Our bodies do something in the gut with it, and we absorb metabolites of those compounds that are different uh, than the actual compound. And so, uh, and this is this is this, you know this is just uh, different sides of the same coin, I guess. Looking at a uh, 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 curcumin and blood blood levels as a way of understanding that you're getting better benefit from the curcumin uh, by having higher blood levels, which is not the case. Yeah, I did see one study where a certain amount of curcumin actually had a beneficial effect on boosting stem cells, but too much actually blocked the stem cell activation. And I think that's a, that's our culture is, you know, the more, the better, a thousand time potential extract potency, yeah. you know, is going to be better as a hundred yeah. times or a thousand times more potent where the body, you know, one thing about that I've learned in Ayurveda and I think you know so well is that the more subtle something is, is the more powerful it is. If you can manipulate the micro environment in a subtle way, you can have a more powerful holistic I effect agree. versus a you know a chemical reaction that is sort of you know an isolated event and where that, that may be good or maybe bad. But here's a great point because that's a great. That's a, I love what you just said, and and I, I think of medicine in two ways: heroic and humble. And so humble medicine is what I really love to do. You know, humble medicine is, is slower and less noticeable and less predictable uh, and less causation. Like you did this and it did that, you know, and it's, it's more beautiful and it's more poetic. And that's what I love. So in our model, it's, it's uh, the traditional medicine, medical models that go into Madiri care are eclectic medicine, physiomedicalism, traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine. So we kind of use theories from those different systems and mold them together. Um, and what I love about Ayurveda is, is, the, is that, you know, you never see them using single herbs or very rarely. I mean, they're always recipes. These very, these very, and sometimes lots and lots of plants in the recipes. And I, and I really love that, that, that concept of, of, uh, you know, of, of, of restoration, you know, that, that kind of that Ayurvedic <laughs> concept of restoration. So, it's so apparent in there. And so that is a big part of, of, of our medicine too, is, is that concept. And, and you know, some of the most well-researched herbs now are, are big Ayurvedic herbs, you know, herbs that I use, ashwagandha. Um, I mean, the research in that, on that herb alone in oncology is just, it's, it's just amazing. You know, I'm gonna do a, a, a lecture in a couple of weeks on um, cancer stem cells, because you mentioned stem cells. So, I'm going to be doing a lecture on um, natural compounds that 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 
reduce cancer stem cells because conventional medicine, as good as it is, predominantly chemotherapy, not only does it not, radiation, not only does it not target cancer stem cells, but it actually enriches them. It fortifies mm. them so they get stronger. And the best way to target cancer stem cells is with natural medicine. And one of the, the most researched compounds is, is withenialoid A, which is one of the withenialoids in ashwagandha. So that has probably, I probably have 15 papers on that compound alone targeting um, cancer stem cells. And so uh, it's a, an amazing plant in the realm of, of, of its impact on mood and anxiety to adaptation and energy. Uh, you know, it's profoundly, and then my number one kind of female tonic herb is Shataveria. So that I use mm. more Shataveria. That's my, that's my chief herb. When I talked about moistening and drying, the best herb, if I was going to select one herb to moisten the body, it would be Shataveria. People complain about that about it because of the estrogenic effects, but I've seen oh, research. No, that's completely false. Matter of fact, right. John, it's got tons of research on it against breast cancer. And it doesn't right. have a real estrogenic effect. And that's, you know, that's the misconception. You know, plants have compounds, and that's the language problem. We keep applying the wrong language to plants. Plants have compounds that mimic estrogen receptors like, like uh, flavonoids and particularly isoflavonoids. Um, and they're not abundant in, in uh, Shataveria, by the way, nor are they at all in Semisifugia, black cohosh. You know, but some plants like red clover do have a lot of the, the biogen in A. And not only do these not promote or induce breast cancer, but they inhibit breast cancer by, we mentioned the endocrine disruptors. So isoflavones have the ability to get to receptors, hormone receptors, bind to them, not induce a, an impact, a mitotic impact on the cell to proliferate it and block the, the either the endocrine disruptor or the endogenous or exogenous estrogens that may be proliferative. So not only are they not only are they not inducing to cancer, but they are are inhibitory to cancer. And the research is 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 very clear and undebatable. It's it's so it's so clear on those. I mean, they've been trying to say black cohosh uh, is is problematic in breast cancer patients, and they, every study just, just keeps showing that women that take the black cohosh have less reoccurrence of their breast cancer, not more. So, um, so that's the, that's the state. So Shataveria uh, is completely safe in people that have had uh, breast cancer or hormonal cancer. Um, I, I, in my wow. book, which you were going to hold up, I have a, what I call a mini monograph on it, but I've updated all my monographs. So I write a monograph, every single herb I use, I write a, my own personal monograph on. My monograph on curcumin or, or turmeric is about 450 slides, about 300 uh, pages long right now. And uh, pretty much every week I update these monographs with study after study after study. My Shataveria monograph is probably more like 50 uh, citations on that one. Um, but it's an immune modulator. It's great for the GI tract. It combats stress. Um, so, and, and rest assured, it's very, very, uh, profoundly safe. Um, and so those are, those are two of my favorite, uh, plants that we use and, and they're based in Ayurveda for sure. Right. Wonderful. Donnie, I think we could talk all day. I know that you could, you, you have, you're just so brilliant. 
and you're helping so Thank many you, people. Sir, and I yeah. hope that people, I hope that people really, you know, really listen to this and get how how valuable a resource you are for all of us out here. Thank you. Um, well, you are as well. I I love everything that you put out and everything you say. You know, so at the and and I don't I don't say that easily. Just so you know, I don't I don't pay that many people that are out in our field uh, those kind of compliments. But I I. I enjoy everything that you write, and and um, certainly your book on wheat is a is a, a beautiful uh, uh, book that I, I completely 100% endorse. <laughs> well, thanks, Donnie, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on. I'm so I'm so grateful, well, really honored uh, to talk to you, and so good to connect again after all these years. Thank you, you as well, and let's do it again. And uh, many blessings to you and your family and your audience. Yeah, you bet. Everybody, uh, MadiriCenter.org. That's M-E-D-E-R-I Center.org. Is that right, Donnie? That's right. And and my blog is just my name, DonnieYance.com, D-O-N-N-I-E-Y-A-N-C-E. And the last thing I'll say is that you didn't mention, but I'm also a musician, a jazz musician, and I just put out a CD called Heaven Awaits, which... Um, it's anyone can go on any of the Spotify, you know, CD Baby, any of those uh, iTunes and listen to it. Uh, but it's a, uh, it's a, uh, I wrote all the music on it. It's 10 songs. I'm a bass player. A lot of them are bass melody. I'm a jazz musician. And uh, Gino Vanelli wrote one song on it um, called Hope Alley. And, and even though it's kind of jazz, it's very easy listening and it's all spiritual music. So the title track is called Heaven Awaits, which is kind of a dedication song, both to, uh, all of my patients that have passed on. And it's kind of a meditation song in that it, it, it is a meditation on the reflection of heaven and earth. Wow, you are so brilliant. So great to have you on. We'll Thank do this you. again. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're so welcome. Bye bye. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.